unless the well-being of the teachers and of the students within is cemented within the school structures, I think Ireland as a society will be the poorer for it. Welcome to Lighting a Fire, all things teaching and learning with the Teaching Council. Welcome to episode six in the Teaching Council's Lighting a Fire podcast series, the podcast where we discuss all things teaching and learning with a diversity of voices. My name is Tomas O'Rourke. I'm the director and CEO of the Teaching Council here in Ireland. And today I'm delighted to be joined uh, for the guest host purposes by Anya Lynch, who's the CEO of the National Parents Council Primary here in Ireland. Anya, you're very welcome to the podcast. Let's introduce yourself to the audience, please. Yeah, so yeah, as, as you say, Tomas, my name is Anya Lynch and I'm the CEO of the National Parents Council Primary. Um, I've been in the role for about 13 years now, so um, starting to understand what it's all about. <laughs> um, but Do share yeah. your insights. <laughs> exactly, but delighted to be here today. So thank you very much Super. for inviting Great me. Anya, a question we ask of our guest host on each occasion, the, the title of the series, Light in the Fire, what does that evoke for you in terms of education, teaching, learning when you hear that phrase? Yeah, I think, uh, I suppose the lighting a fire bit for me is, it's about um, sparking something in, in the learner, um, I suppose, in, in terms of my experience, obviously, over the primary sector, it's kind of sparking the interest in children that they'll be curious and, and I suppose, be creators of their own learning as well, because that fire's lit and it continues then into their, their, their lives that that uh, fire burns for curiosity, creativity. And I suppose that's that's what the it, it evokes in my in my thoughts when I hear it. Brilliant, which is a nice kind of segue because the idea of continuing the fire on beyond primary, which is as a, your your sector responsibility in terms of parents, leads us nicely into the guest uh, interviewee, if that's the word for, for this podcast, because he works in the post-primary sector. Uh, and that's Clive Byrne, who's very well known in Irish education. Uh, he's the director of the National Association of Principals and Deputy Principals, that's the NAPD at post-primary level. Clive previously worked as a post-primary school teacher and principal, and he served two terms on the NCCA, that's the National Council for Curriculum and Assessment. And I mean, Clive's career is, is almost legendary at this stage. He's, he's been involved in so much, contributed so constructively and creatively to so many movements in education. I'm really looking forward to having this conversation with yourself, Clive, and with Anya to explore as you look back on that career now um, in particular and what, what your thoughts now and where we are now and where we're, we're going to. Clive, the question, the opening question we ask of all our guests in this format of podcast is, is always the one about schooling for you. When you were when you were younger uh, and going to school, what was school like for you? Uh, what, what would you say there, Clive? Well, I started school in Stanhope Street Convent, along with the likes of Joan Burton and Pat Kenny. They all started in Stanhope Street earlier than me, of course, obviously. And boys could go to the convent until uh, they had made communion. And then I moved to St. Vincent's in Glasnevin, which was primary and post-primary, uh, where I completed uh, my education there. It was um, an interesting school. Um, I was very, very happy in Vincent's in Glasnevin. Um, from the primary, I was a little bit tentative in the first while because I was regarded as bright and I was moved by the brothers from first class to third class and I struggled an awful lot in third class in terms of how that would go but basically by fourth class I'd recovered my um, perspicacity as you'd say <laughs> and I was able to go forward then into the senior cycle. I moved on to the secondary school and I did my man test as it was at the time 
uh, Trivan Nguyen There was a Gael, uh, a Gael uh, wow. stream uh, for that. And that brought about for me the um, love of Irish, which I had. Uh, and then I moved on to leaving certificate. And the school then was very, very strictly screened, screened. And I was in the top stream at that stage. Uh, so, you know, as, a, as, as, as everybody else in my class, um, I did Irish, English, Latin, French, maths, physics, and chemistry. And if you were in the B stream, you were allowed to do business studies and um, and uh, biology. So, I mean, just to show you the, in, the the idea of streaming at the time, that probably put into me the idea that streaming wasn't the best way that we wanted to go. So at that stage then, I was in St. Vincent's. I did my leave insert in 1973. Just as an aside, I missed the primary cert by one year, right? Oh. Uh, I, actually did that but I did the intercert the leaving cert in 73 and then I went on uh, to UCD where I did I, I, I just to focus on school days for a second you spoke as you say about your experience of streaming mm -hmm. and ironically for someone who you could be said benefited from it but you, you adopted a different view is there anything else from your experience of schooling I mean, you seem to have enjoyed it very much but one way or the other influenced your view of education as you became a teacher and a principal because you know any uh, any ways we, perhaps you reacted counterintuitively to your experience or that shaped your views over time? I wouldn't say that it was counterintuitive, Tomas, because Vincent's was a very, very um, traditional type of school, right? And it, it, it benefited an awful lot. Like, I, I was born in Cabra and went to Vincent's in Glasnevin. But at that time in the 1970s, out around Ashburn and Dunboyne, there was no uh, second-level schools. So many, many people at that stage came in from Ashburn and Dunboyne into Vincent's and O'Connor Connells and other places like that. So there was a great mixture within it. But it was very, very traditional in terms of the number of brothers that were in the schools, the fact that it was religiously led. But there were a number of very, very fine teachers within the school. So the streaming was a way of life at that time. Mm -hmm. But certainly in my first job, when I finished um, my degree and went to work um, in Mount Temple School, uh, certainly I felt that mixed ability was the way to go. And okay. I was glad to have that idea reinforced during my time and um, when I was in Mount Temple. But I was very, very happy in St. Vincent's. It had a big primary school, a big secondary school, and there was also an orphanage on it and at uh, the site of the schools. And we used to mix and mingle and blend. There was tremendous links between Vincent's and the FIANA Gaelic Football Club. Uh -huh. and, uh, you know, I you know, participated in school sports, but I was never really any good with it. But the bottom line is, I benefited from having a really, really visionary principal, Brother Burke, who I think is still alive and is based in Marino. And um, he was a tremendous building brother. And he built Vincent's, he built the swimming pool there. He also developed St. Declan's and he also developed St. Fintons. So he was a tremendous uh, person um, and a visionary leader um, of the Christian Brothers Order at that time. And uh, but what particular then, I'm just trying to, I'm curious about this. So you, you went through a streaming process, you said it was of its time and so on. You become a teacher in Mount Temple. Um, but, and you're fairly clear in your own view at that stage and you find kindred spirits to say, no, mixed ability is the way to go. What led to that to you to form that view type? Was it your you know your formal education as a teacher? Was it own personal experience? Why that shift in thinking if you might if you someone coming from? Well it was interesting and I, I think to most the vir by virtue of the fact that I was the first generation of my family to go on to uh, third level, right, in terms of how that would go. And when I went to UCD, I undertook a degree in Irish and French, and I participated hugely in the various societies that participated in UCD at the time. The Common Gaelic, I was auditor of the French Society, I was record secretary of the Literary Historical Society and others within that. I mean, I was a real student activist on the Students, um, on the students Union and other areas like that. 
that. But the bottom line is, it was the mixture that I experienced during my university time of the different cultures, the different individuals coming from all parts of the country with all different interests, that that showed clearly to me the need to mix and mingle in terms of um, education. And the fact that, um, you know, the like certainly it's much easier to teach in a streamed situation. You know, you're not looking to differentiate in other areas like that. But I felt that the trouble that people went to in terms of the differentiation uh, in, an, in a mixed ability setting was really, really worthwhile. So that probably, it wasn't necessarily counterintuitive, but I think the fact is, as I said, that I was the first of my family to go on to third level. And then the experience I had in third level, mixing and mingling with the various others, I felt that that would stand me in great stead. And when I went to Mount Temple, that was something like at the time when I was in UCD in the mid 70s, if you were doing the honours degree, those exams were always taking place in the autumn. So we used to have an awful lot of time to discuss matters of great import around the lake in Belfi. And, you know, I remember a colleague uh, since passed, unfortunately, who said to me, you know, they're looking for a HDIP student um, over in Mount Temple. He said, I think they kick with the other foot, but they might actually look, um, you know, at you coming in if they're looking for a HDIP in Irish. Yes. Now, Mount Temple was a very, very go-ahead school at that mm. stage. It was the Protestant equivalent of New Park on the south side. Mm -hmm. And it was made up of the Hibernian Marine School, Mountjoy and the Bertrand and Rutland School. So it was a number of schools that had amalgamated. And Sean Brooks, who was the first headmaster, was a very, very visionary leader. Mm -hmm. And I did my HDIP at that stage, along with the appointment of John Medlicott, who was taking over um, from the City of Dublin ETB as principal. And certainly I was welcomed into that school. And it was, an, it, it was a school, you know, where everybody was young, anxious to make a, a success of it. And there was a tremendous mixture of young staff members, as well as a severe backbone of traditionalists who'd been there from okay. Marine School, Mountjoy Marine School, and Bertrand and Rutland. Now, go ahead. I was, I was coming with a, with a question there, Anya. Hi, yeah, Clive. I just, just um, thinking about your conversation there about streaming um, and also your reference to being a student activist. And, and that kind of student voice piece that, that comes in there. I'm just wondering, have you got any sense of, of students at second level um, satisfaction with education, whether they're streamed or mixed? Do they seem to engage with their education more or less if they're streamed or mixed? Have you, have you got any sense of that? Well, certainly from my experience in the classroom in Mount Temple and a number of other schools, I felt that the school climate was much better when there was mixed ability. I felt that, yes, people in the A streams may have been um, very, very happy with their experience in school, but there used to be a level of disappointment and often a level of um, uh, cantankerousness in the lower streamed classes that made it not worth its while. And certainly in terms of the students themselves, their involvement in school, their own self-esteem, other things like that, I felt that in a mixed ability setting, they were much, much happier because certainly if you structured your timetable and you used your timetable as an instrument of quality control, it was possible to offer an, um, a, a, a range of subjects that would meet the needs of the students. And even if you had to compromise uh, by mixed ability in terms of subjects like Irish and maths, by having setting 
rather than streaming. I think that that gave the students an ability uh, to um, to shine and to show what they could do in the subjects that they were keen to do. And one of the things that influenced me as a result of my time in Mount Temple when I moved on to other schools was to try and make sure that you fitted the school curriculum to the needs of the students and to the interests of the students. And certainly in Mount Temple, I was exposed to a really, really wide curriculum. Apart from the fact that the school itself is almost like a university campus, there are a number of buildings in 30 acres in the middle of Clontarf. But it was, it seemed to be at the time in the 1970s, there was investment. Then in the 1980s, an awful lot of that investment had to be curled back a little bit within it. But certainly the vision that the staff had, the expertise of the teachers on the staff, there were a number of published authors in the area of science, maths, modern language, and so on. Mm-hmm. And that set the bar really, really high in terms of them, um, uh, the, the, the offer that was there to the students. But having the grounds around the school and the interest in extracurricular activities, whether it was rugby or hockey or music or drama, all of those things provided an experience for the students to be able to enable them to grow and to develop their own personalities. Not everybody went on to third level, but people left Mount Temple having benefited from that experience more often than not. And Sorry. that includes my thinking. Well, yeah, and you're describing, therefore, a sense of community in school, Clive, with the sense in which every student not only finds their voices on you, is exploring, but gets a chance to express it, whatever and however that may be. And you also said, and we come across this earlier on, I'll refer to it too, that on one understanding of teaching, the streaming is, is easier. It's easier to teach in inverted commas in a stream. Set. And yet the expansive, beautiful description you're giving of school life in it with a different view and lens is, is obviously you know, inspirational. If you were to unpack your vision of education uh, uh, that lies behind the way what you're describing, and based on all your, your experience, what, how would you describe your vision for education, both then, now, your philosophy? What, what is that, Clive, for you? Well, I mean, for me, you can only, you can only structure a philosophy based on your experience. And I felt that with John Medlicott and the staff that I worked with in Mount Temple, I was given a really, really good experience. So then when I moved Presentation Brothers in Glass 2, that was completely different. It wasn't co-ed. It wasn't non-uniform. And it was a streamed situation. And I moved there at a really, really critical time because it used to be a smallish school that was fee charging under the charism of Edmund Rice. But the Presentation Brothers figured that a small 180 fee charging school wasn't within the charism of the founder and they looked to enter the free scheme. And they were absolutely thwarted at every turn by the department who weren't interested in taking on another school. And now that's probably a little bit harsh to say, and I might have to qualify it later on if there was to be book, verse and chapter asked for it. But the fact that Minister Neve Brannock was Minister for Education and she was based in the constituency, that certainly helped it move into the free scheme. And it moved um, by way of some changes within that. So what I wanted to try and do is, and I'm sure a number of the staff were very, very frustrated with me when I went in. They were strictly uniformed, right? And I know, like, I just saw the kids and they all looked great to me, whether they were in a shirt and tie or whatever. Whereas in Mount Temple, the uniform oftentimes devolved to denim and uh, other ways, like looking at it within it. But the philosophy of education, that I tried to move it to Prez in Glass 2, 
which was streamed. And quickly, we moved to the lack of streaming within it. And in those instances, there was a little bit of resistance amongst the staff. But in a short space of time, you can see that other things like school climate, discipline, things like that, that was uh, one of the um, issues, I think, uh, that in a, in a very close community, like Glastool and Dunleary and the Presentation Brothers and so on, I was given a really free hand to work with an active past people's union, an active parents council and students who were willing to move uh, to put in place a slightly different philosophy. And in a funny sort of a way, in, in, in my time in Press Glastool, and it was only for three or four years, one of the things that we benefited greatly for, it was a very, very tragic time in Ireland and in Northern Ireland, but we got really involved in Cooperation Ireland in setting up a twinning arrangement with Banbridge Academy and other schools in Northern Ireland. And that actually showed the students the differences in the different types of schools that were there. Yes, it was mixed ability and other areas like that. But the philosophy of education was to offer as broad a curriculum as we could within the context of the staff. Now, I was lucky in Glastool because the numbers were growing because there was a concept of the new kid on the block and things have changed in Prez and parents that might have had suspicions about it and, um, you know, were sending the children back after it, that the standards might drop because it wasn't fee charging anymore. Those children began to come back. So, you know, by the time I left Prez, there was the numbers over 300 within it. And then interestingly, one of the issues for the Prez that ultimately led to its closure was Minister Brannock's other decision that they weren't going to have to pay fees in university. Now, I know things have moved on with third level at the moment, but one of the issues that really did for Prez Glastool in the end was that people figured if they didn't have to pay fees for university, then they could invest. And the kids that would have come in second level and the kids that would have come to present last tool began to pass our doors to go to CDC, Monkstown, Blackrock, Andrews or other things like that. And that was an issue within the time. But my philosophy of education, of trying to cater for the needs of the students, to maximise the talents of the staff, to offer extracurricular activities and co-curricular activities that enabled everybody to shine. I think that that stood me in good stead in Mount Temple. It stood also in Prez Glastool. And when I left Prez Glastool to move to St. Mary's, in those circumstances, uh, some of the issues that came about um, in Prez Glastool, I was moving from one boys' school to another boys' school, although this time fee charging and so on. But wow. I think that there was a willingness amongst the parents and the students to see that change was for the better and that the school would benefit as a result of it. So you, you're describing, you know, a fairly um, exciting early career, Clive. You know, you move fairly quickly from teacher to, to school leadership. You, you encounter a diversity of settings, fee-paying, non-fee-paying, um, moving from strictly streamed to less streamed, if not lack of streaming, and so on. And your, your, your philosophy and vision that, as you say, emerges to experience. It probably was there implicitly all along, but emerges to that experience. Tell us about the journey then, because the, the, the easy question I could ask them would be, were you always ambitious to be the director of the NAPD? Or um, so often the usual journeys we hear of are, I did one thing after the other, I followed my heart and I found myself in this space. Is that a great cool story? What was your journey like? Well, my, my journey was unusual. Well, first of all, as I said, I stumbled into the hate slip and I stumbled into Mount Temple in many, many ways. In Mount Temple, it was a Protestant comprehensive. Uh, there was a third of the staff in the ASTI, a third of the staff, a little bit in the TUI, and there was nearly a third that were non-union. 
And in the situation where I came across, school leadership was willing to devolve authority and responsibility. And in a vibrant school, at that stage, people were prepared to take on roles rather than posts, right? And in the issue where I dealt with, you had a situation where I had an an A post in my mid-30s, which wouldn't have happened in a voluntary secondary school or in many, many other schools. I was a senior dean within the school. Um, I had worked my way up through two terms uh, because with me in the Mount Temple context, you started off as a year head in first year and you kept the year going until they left in sixth year. So I had done two terms of that during my time there. And then um, Mr. Medlicott, um, in, 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 the, in 1990, I decided I want to do a diploma in education administration. And one of the things was to do a thesis on leadership within the schools and so on. But um, there was a, Mr. Medlicott decided that he was going to move on at that stage. And um, at that stage, I said, uh, and I was young and arrogant enough to put my name in the pat, in the, in the hat uh, for um, a, a principal role within the school. And I knew, as I was Catholic in the Protestant school, that it would never, ever uh, arise, um, you know, my religion at that stage. But I was really thrown um, in my mind when at the interview, the chair of the board of the school who was interviewing at the time, he said, Clive, why would we appoint a Catholic as chair uh, or as principal of um, a Church of Ireland school? And in those circumstances, I was thrown a little bit. I recovered. I did a pretty good interview, but obviously I wasn't appointed. But what became clear to me was that if I was keen to take on the leadership role and to be able to influence the day-to-day thing, if I wanted to move up, I needed to move out. And for me, that was an enormous, an enormous challenge um, at that stage because I was really, really happy within the school. But as I said, having taken on uh, the... um, the, uh, the the Diploma in Education Administration under Anya Highland, who later went on to be a professor of education in Cork. Like she was a wonderful role model for me. And the admin grouping that I was in only had 12 people in it. So there was tremendous exchange of ideas within that. So I moved on then uh, as principal of Prez in Glastool to replace Brother Terence, a really, really visionary man, and um, also involved in, in, in things. But it took me during my time in the school, I never could get his smell of cigarettes out of the office, despite my best interest. He was an inveterate smoker, happiest on a tractor out in the field up in Hudson Road. But I mean, in those circumstances, when I was um, um, in, 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 in Prez in Glasgow, I went there in 1994. And it was an interesting thing that emerged at that stage because lay principals were being appointed in schools nationally, but they didn't have a voice. The joint managerial body or the AMCSS at that time represented the boards and they were very, very much religious focused. So emerged at that time was the Secondary School Principals Association of Ireland, SFPAI. And if I can give an unabashed plug for that, Tomas, Michael McCann, who is the former president of NAPD, has just written the history of the SFPAI and I wrote the foreword to it. But I mean, at that stage, I became very involved in SFPAI and in um, links between school leaders and an association of school leaders. Now, what led to my movement, um, I was on the executive of the SFPAI and they were making some progress, but Michal Martin, our current Taoiseach, was the Minister for Education at the time. But there were seven groups in the different sectors representing school leaders, principals and deputy principals. And he said he couldn't be meeting the groups uh, to be um, 
discussing the same issues. And in those circumstances, what he wanted to do was if they could come together. So Esher Dublin, Esher Ireland was being run at that stage in my region in Glasgow by Mary McLean. And Mary McLean was appointed first a director of the National Association of Principals and Deputy Principals. And in and around that time, I moved from Glasgow to St. Mary's in Ratmines, but I still kept my involvement in SFPAI. And then when the NAPB emerged from that, um, I was in a position then uh, to get onto the executive of the NAPB. And I was president of NAPB from 2005 to 2006. And that actually then contributed uh, to my involvement in the European school heads and to the work of NAPD over the years, because I felt NAPD wanted uh, to uh, put in place a mechanism to meet not the sectoral needs of the of, of second leadership. Level. Like what we wanted to do is we wanted to promote leadership within the mm-hmm. schools and look to expand in an organization that represented both lay and religious people at the uh-huh. start. And that was a first. Brilliant. Anya, do I come in with a question there? You, you mentioned there, Clive, the, the European um, Organisation for School Principals. And I'm just wondering, in terms of reflection, what do you think, um, having had that opportunity to see the leadership across Europe, what do you think would be um, the, the main thing that Ireland has to offer that network? And what would be the thing that you've seen over your time in other countries around school leadership that you really think we should take on here, if there was one of each? Well, there was um, certainly from my point of view, right, um, when I was president of NAPD, I was on the board of the European school heads. And there was an enormous move uh, with the breaking up of the Balkan countries to try and democratize education um, in, uh, the, in, in Europe. Now, but you must remember that education is a national competence. It isn't a European competence. And we were working on the basis that Ireland had an enormous reputation in Europe because when I was president of ESHA for two terms, I was able to go to meetings and when asked to explain about the education system in Ireland, I was able to say that for um, every child that starts off age four, over 90% of the children are still in the system aged 18. And many, many European countries regarded that as an enormous statistic. And it is. But it meant then that in Ireland, there was a mindset that if it's not broken, you don't need to fix it. And the one thing about the experience that I had in Esha was knowing how things were done differently in different countries. Like in Ireland, we have an involvement an extracurricular and a co-curricular involvement by teachers and other things like that, which is unheard of in the likes of France or Germany. If you want your child to play games or take part in drama or anything else like that, they are clubs that take place after school and parents would pay to be involved within that. In those circumstances, I was able to glean from the European school heads and by having um, council meetings and uh, international meetings um, in, in, in the likes of Copenhagen or, 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 or Germany or, um, or Slovenia or in Estonia, all of those meant that there was a maelstrom of educational thought and people were looking admiringly at Ireland and what we were doing, which was very, very good for our status. But it meant then that we could look at what they were doing in, in Europe, especially in terms of in the likes of Germany, the fact that you can do a level 10 PhD in um, in apprenticeships, 
that's unheard of in Ireland. And one of the points that I used to make at Esher was that we had an enormous transfer rate from um, a second level and third level uh, to university. Um, so like that was something that we didn't really need. And it was almost as if apprenticeships were looked on as um, a, a second rate option. Whereas what we were looking to try and do was to bring inspirational speakers and inspirational methodologies into Ireland. And I'm proud to say that during my time as director of NAPD, any of the large world figures in education have either spoken at our conferences or our symposia. And in those instances, I think it's really wonderful. Like we had a virtual conference with 670 people attending, you know, last week, where we had Hargreaves presenting virtually from Ottawa and Hattie presenting on feedback in um, in in um, from Melbourne in Australia. And in those circumstances, what led me uh, to benefit from the European experience was the different modes of assessment. Because to be honest with you, Anya, everything that we were doing was relying on the leaving certificate and one sitting of the leaving certificate. And that wasn't the case in many, many European countries, nor even in the United Kingdom, which we know from UCAS and other things like that. And that led to a big drive um, in NAPD to try and promote curricular reform and to see if we could have um, involvement in different modes of assessment that would mean that because it was clear to me from early in my time in, in as director of NAPD that the universities were saying that the type of student that they were getting from second level wasn't meeting their particular needs. And, you know, the answer that I said, that's because the Leaving Cert is now really only used as a filter for third level because the CAO is a wholly owned subsidiary of the larger universities. And they can decide, like when I when I was younger and did my Leaving Cert in 1973, I bought my matric for five pounds, like as was the norm in those days. And I could use my matric and my Leaving Cert to go on to whatever courses. But it was access to university was much, much different then. So in, that's a very long answer on you to what you're saying. But I think the key thing that I learned from my European colleagues was to try and promote different models of assessment in Ireland that would enable us to meet the needs of the student. Because I think, you know, when, when I took over as president of NAPD and Mary McGlynn was director, and um, we worked very, very closely with Gareth Fitzgerald and um, um, Maureen Gaffney and so on, um, on issues that were of interest to principals and school leaders. Garrett Fitzgerald had a magnificent paper for NAPD on civic republicanism. And we tried to build on that. What vision have we got? What values have we got in our Irish society and what vision are we going to put in place to try and bring it there? So in those circumstances, we felt that it would be really, really important to try and get a vision and values and backbone to what we want to do in our Irish education um, conferences. Or can, I, can I pick up on that piece? Because I think the, your, your point about the European context, in particular your point about the PhD level qualification, apprenticeship, really, I wasn't even aware of that. And that really strikes me. And given your, the, 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 the pathway revision you took the NAPD on, the input from likes of Hatcher, the input from Hargreaves and so on, you were clearly keen to inject just a whole new type of conversation into the system. And we, then we look at the, the establishment of the new government department, the FERRIS acronym, you know, Further Higher Education, Innovation, Research, and I think it's a science. Um, 
where do you see us now? I mean, do, do you think, I, I, I think of my own views, we have made good progress, but how far have we come on that journey? What, what, your, your vision seems to be quite clearly about, about the diversity of knowledge, the diversity of pathways, each one having parity of esteem, no funneling, for example, etc. How well-placed are we now compared to where we were when you started off as director of NAPD, in your view? How much progress have we made? Well, I, I think we have made significant progress in NAPD because um, in a situation before, right, once the decision was made that, um, you know, whether it was a vocational school, a community comprehensive school, a voluntary secondary school, once that decision was made and the same syllabi and curriculum was going to be offered in all things, what we had then was the challenge that we have too many schools. Like we have three and a bit thousand schools at primary level and 700 plus at post-primary level. And what that, that actually circumscribes the level of offering that a second level school can give in terms of the range of experiences. Now, in Ireland, we're not as ready as they are in other things. Say, for instance, in Germany, where at a particular range, you go down a vocational track or you go down through the, um, uh, the academic track. Now, I, I don't agree with that because I think in countries like there, they're making that choice far too early. And I like the idea of the broad curriculum that we have where the students can take um, uh, key aspects of it. But one of the things that was a key issue um, during uh, Patricia McDonough's presidency of the NAPD was a presentation that we had virtually from Sir Kenneth Robinson, promoting creativity and the benefits of creativity and how the children, you know, are wonderful. And then we uneducate them <laughs> when they come to schools in many, many ways, because we suppress an awful lot of the creativity and the ingenuity that's there. So from a situation where we have a Department of Education that many people would have said was um, uh, was not, um, you know, not the most vibrant, uh, over over the decades um, and was a bastion of conservatism serving the needs of the churches in Ireland in many, many ways. We have moved and on the basis of, you know, Sean O'Fallou and Bridget McManus, the two secretary generals that I would have worked with and people that I would regard as visionary, say like the chief inspector Harold Hislop or before him, Aidan Stack, I figured then that we had the right people in the right place at the right time to try and move change. And equally, I think, in the university presidents that have been around over the last decade, there have been people to look at things in a different way. So a key change was to split the Department of Education into the Department of Further and Higher Education. And certainly the personnel that's there, Minister Foley, who had a very, very successful roundtable discussion at our conference with our presidents last week, and um, certainly, uh, you know, got, would seem to have got a bit of a poison chalice um, at the start of it, whereas Minister Harris in further education seemed to be in a situation where he was expanding the whole area of apprenticeships and different modes because he apparently wanted that it was to be further and higher education rather than higher and further education. So that's where he's going. So... I'm can, an I, interesting can, point I, can I pick up on a couple of points there, Clive, just 
before yeah. I get sidetracked yeah. off. You talk about creativity and, and Ken Robinson and, and, and that kind of element of education. And when we look at employers um, that when, when they tell us what they're looking now from people who are leaving college or leaving directly from school, and they're talking about the soft skills that they value above everything else um, in terms of that kind of team playing, the communication skills, all of these um, really important skills in the workplace that we have now. And, and, and they value it over the technical skills um, almost. And, and, and the creativity piece as well. I know within our methodologies of, of, of teaching, we're trying to incorporate those skills into how children learn, but we don't measure it. So just picking up on your assessment piece from before and the different modes of assessment, how can we move our assessment um, at, at the end of second level uh, school to incorporate a measurement of those really key things that, that children love and seem to engage with um, and, and also the employers want and yet we're still stuck on, on point systems for geography, history and, and, and the likes and we're not capturing that huge growth that children have had during their second level experience in terms of these really key skills. That's a really a really good question um, Anya and uh, the challenge is that Irish teenagers are very clever and they've cracked the code. And if they want to go on to a particular um, course in college, they know what they have to do. And in a situation where, now this is a, may appear to be a cynical approach, right? And it's not meant to be a cynical, a cynical approach, but the idea is that if you're in a situation where, you know, the mark of a good teacher is an ability to predict the questions, to minimize the courses and to teach to the test. That's what we moved to up to a number of years ago. Now, one of the issues for us and for me in terms of it um, at the outset of my term as director of NAPD was to try and advance curriculum reform. And one of the things when I was on the NCCA council um, was um, uh, to um, during my second term on the council, I was asked to chair the board for senior cycle. And one of the things that was there was looking to do things different, to create the opportunity for independent learning, to create opportunities for the soft skills, to look at things that we do in transition year and see if we could carry them on into senior cycle. Why do we have to take the top six results in exams? I remember, you know, getting into trouble once when I was saying, you know, that it, it struck me uh, that because the students had developed um, a hierarchy of what a subject was worth in terms of going on to third level and so on, that the highest density of students studying agricultural science was in Leeson Street in the Institute, where you were in a situation because the perception was that the um, ag science was easier to get a, 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 an A. Hi, Byrne. Are you saying that city people can't be farmers? No, not in the <laughs> I'm not saying in the that. I'm saying it in the context of that people in Irish schools have cracked the code and yes. they know what they needed to do to get the points. Mm. But as I said earlier on, the universities are telling us that the type of people that are coming into them anymore don't have the independent learning skills. So here's, the, well, here's the rub now, because you've raised this other point a few moments ago while we're on this now, that you pointed out correctly that the CEO's system, it's a, it's an org, it's a company as I understand it, owned by the universities. 
Mm-hmm. And as you point out, the university has been some of the university have been saying to you and to others the kind of the lack of third level readiness of uh, graduating post primary student teachers, and yet the means by which they enter is controlled by the universities. And then you've always questioned about the assessment methodologies, particularly as you go. I hate to use the words further up the system or along the system, whatever you phrase it, the closer you get to that point, the narrower the assessment matrix seems to become. There is obviously your know, practical assessments and so on and different means on your know, oral exams and so on. But nonetheless, it's all about a, a terminal result. There's a lot of contradictions there, Clive, aren't there? And, and what's your take on that? A huge number of, of, of contradictions, uh, Tomas, because, you know, as I said at the very outset, your first question to me, like I was in the top class in St. Vincent's. I did Irish, English, Latin, French, maths, physics and chemistry. Mm-hmm. And if you were in the weaker class, you did biology and commerce. Everybody in the weaker class went on to become entrepreneurs and to make a fortune, you know, <laughs> many, many ways in lives. And many of us then went on to work within the public service. Mm-hmm. But the point, um, you know, that you are making is that because... Um, it is a reductivist approach, you know, in terms of the number of people trying to get into uh, third level because there aren't enough places. One of the big benefits that has come about as a result of COVID is that we have had to do things slightly differently. And one of the things that I did discover in the European context, that Ireland is pretty unusual, not unique, but that in the situation in Ireland, teachers are not willing to assess their students for high-grade tests. Now, in, in other countries in Europe, you know, the teacher's recommendation will result in students going on to third level or higher education and other areas like that. But one of the things with the um, with the calculated grades and the accredited grades is that there has been a little bit of movement in it. And people has shown, sorry, the system has shown its ability to pivot to enable the class of 2020 to move on. Now, when we were enabling that to happen last year, little did we think that we'd need to be able to move the class of 2021 on in a similar enough type of a situation. And the fact that this system this year will be run by state exams um, uh, rather than the Department of Education, I think that's quite significant in many, many ways. I think the department has recognised that it wants to enable the the class of 2021 to move on, but not be seen as a precedent, you know, because otherwise, you know, you'd find that teachers would be reluctant to engage to the level and to the expertise that they have done to enable that to happen. But the CAO, as it is there, it's well within uh, the bounds of possibility that if more places are created um, at university, and I read today that an additional 3,000 places are likely to be created at uh, third level uh, this year, um, uh, in addition to the ones that were put in place for last year. And given that that's the case, right, we have um, a rising population at second level. So there will be more applicants for places in university than there are places for them for the next while. But if we can promote the likes of apprenticeships, if we can promote the likes of uh, different modes of training for people uh, to take up roles uh, that they can uh, be very, very happy and make a very useful contribution to society and be of equal status in society, I think in, the, in, 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 in eight or nine years' time, we'll find ourselves moving to the situation that they had in the UK, where they have more places and not as many bums on seats to fill the university places. And in those circumstances, they're able, you know, and uh, as, a, as a school leader, and um, people will realise, you know, that in many instances, uh, they would have um, had 
to fill in UCAS forms where the personal vision and statement of the student would be taken into account by the um, uh, academic uh, institution in the United Kingdom and they would be offered places based on getting minimal results. Now that's a completely different model and I'm not sure it would sit in, in an Irish context. Mm -hmm. The one thing in Ireland, you know, we can say to ourselves that it isn't, you know, it's what you know, not who you yeah. know in terms of the Leaving Cert. But the brutal but fair Leaving Cert isn't meeting the needs of 20% of the cohort that are now taking in it. And yeah. in the context of a changing Ireland, what we need to ask ourselves now, going back to Gareth Fitzgerald's vision and values document, mm -hmm. what do we want a well-educated 18-year-old Irish boy or girl to look like when they come out of school. And yes. that leads to a reimagining in many, many ways of the type of schools that we have in place. And that leads on to the other questions, um, you know, about the large number of schools that we have and the structure of schools that we have. Uh, we, well, can we put a pin in that for a second, Clive, because there's two areas that I'm re I know we, could, we, we haven't even covered, I'd say, a third of the anticipated list of themes. That's a sign of a good conversation. But I can't let you go in about, look for 17, 20 minutes, they're exploring both leadership in and of itself and well-being the school community context. The last time I'm stopping you where you are because you're, you're, you're branching out now into, okay, there's the 18-year-old, the, 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 the child, the learner, which obviously is the focus of the whole endeavour of teaching and learning, what the society and the community they enter into and the whole idea of how schools are structured in school communities. So I want to, that's why I want to segue here now when you've when made that, that mention. Talk to me about, you've obviously been, a, 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 I think, a, a founding member, uh, along with myself and Anya, of the Wellbeing for Teachers and Learners group. The NAPD were there from the very, very beginning. Tell us why, I suppose, tell the audience why. Why Wellbeing? Why that group? Why are you so, um, thankfully, heavily invested in the, in the Wellbeing, particularly in a whole school community context? Because I think uh, in terms of Wellbeing, Right, there's huge emphasis by the department at the moment on the 300 hours or the 400 hours. It's 300, you know, for next year within the context of COVID, but it will move to 400 hours and um, in the fullness of time. And on the basis that unless it's in, it, it's by there by structure, it'll be subsumed into teaching of maths or Irish or religion or something else like that within it. But what we're keen with the Wellbeing for Teachers and Learners group is to emphasize the learners and the teachers because societal pressures are such at the moment that well-being often goes by the fore. And as I was saying at the outset, part of my philosophy is to create a positive climate involving staff, student, parents, and so on. And unless the well-being of the teachers and of the students within is, 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 is cemented within the school structures, I think Ireland as a society will be the poorer for it because we want to create well-adjusted students. But if we have teachers who are under so much pressure as a result of, you know, society's ills or, you know, the, like I said this before, and it's, it, 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 there was always a tremendous um, collaboration between Irish people in their society. And unfortunately, our schools are governed by competition rather than collaboration. And if I can put it, not in political terms, I think we've moved from a situation where Sinn Féin was at the core of our existence to May Féin. And I think that this idea of, you know, people coming through, trying to do the very, very best for themselves and, you know, home to be grudgers and in many, many ways, that's not something, you know, that we want as a vision for our society. And in many instances, we've become more harsh 
And with the emphasis on the personal and with the emphasis on the personal fulfillment, I think we lose out in terms of climate, in terms of well-being and societal well-being. And unless, well, I'd love to be able to go back, you know, to the more ideas of the collaboration between people uh, that existed in a rather more simple, uh, simpler Ireland um, of a number of decades ago. But that's not going to change and it can't change because of the number of people that have come into Ireland with different cultures, with different aspirations. And diverse with, Ireland. Yeah. The new Ireland, you know, that's there. So well-being is a learning. I, I, and just on that thing of learning then, because that maelstrom you're describing, as I listened to you and you, you were a school leader, that has to be a headwreck for school leaders. You know, they, 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 this kind of rapidly changing society, the diversity, which we all so welcome. And yet these contrasting expectations, the shift from you say the ourselves to myself and the competitive edge that seems particularly strong in post-primary, if I might, might agree with that, but I think it's particularly acute there because of the increasing stake, high stakes nature of the system as you go along towards leave certificate. How do you feel the position of the school leadership has responded you know, to all those pressures? What supports are missing that could be provided by the system? I suppose in a nutshell, where stands school leadership in the midst of that maelstrom you're describing? Well, you see, school leadership is pivotal because there's been so much change within education in the last while. And, um, you know, with the uh, the emergence of new subjects like politics and society, um, like uh, computer science, like exams for PE, a further investment in modern languages, all of those things. But the school leader, in terms of their role, right, they're... What they have to do is to be present within their school. Like when I, I mentioned earlier on, when I was um, in Glastool, we worked uh, with uh, Banbridge Academy through Cooperation Ireland. One of the best things that I did when I was in St. Mary's was to have an arrangement through an organization that I worked with. I was chair of AidLink, which is an NGO working in Kenya and Uganda and Ghana. And one of the things that emphasized to individuals to, to the students, the importance of the individual was to try and set up an exchange with St. James's in Bantama, where students from St. Mary's and students from Ghana were able to come back. And, you know, certainly we weren't going there to build houses or we weren't going there to build schools or whatever. The Mary's students went to experience the education in Africa and attended classes with a couple of weeks. And the teachers that went over with them they were in the context of being able to um, uh, to teach uh, to the African children that were there. So when those students came back, and they would have been transition year or fifth year students, there was a benefit. Obviously, you couldn't do something like that every year, but we did it every two years. And from a, a low beginning of um, uh, of 12 or 14 students going out there, and in those circumstances, it moved to a situation where 60 students would have gone out to experience. And when they come back to Ireland, they see the deprivation, they see the benefits that they have in terms of their own schooling and what Ireland can do from them. And they act as a conduit in their own parishes, in their own groups and organizations to show a need for civic responsibility and also for, um, uh, for, 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 social, for social cohesion. And they are the best people that we can invest in, in terms of the well-being for teachers and learners. But the leader itself 
creates the climate to enable that to happen. It used to happen in Mount Temple in my first instance when we would take the entire sixth year down to the Dingle Peninsula uh, for a combined study trip to stay in Dune and Orr um, just before the February half term. And that was a mixture of looking to get them into the Gwaeltoft areas to improve their Irish, but they also did history, they also did biology and all of the things like that that were ready down there. So the school leaders can come up with a vision to show that this is what they want to get across for the students. And it isn't just academic excellence, it's personal growth and development. And I think that's the challenge for leadership, to be able to be in a head space where they're able to do that. Because one of the things that we've been looking to try and do is to put in place resources and supports for the school leaders so that they have time to concentrate on teaching and learning. And it's not all administration, governance and other aspects that they need to come through. So like the necessary supports to enable that, um, I think is something that is, 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 is where an organization like NAPD in collaboration with the management bodies, looking with parents, council and other things like that, that we can try and see if we can come up with a mechanism to put in place the supports for the leaders to have the thinking space to enable them to grow and to develop their own capacity as leadership and to communicate that to the staff and onwards to the students. If I could just pick up on a couple of those themes, Clive. Um, one of the things that you're, you're very much talking about in terms of well-being is that sense of community in a school. And, and we also know that in terms of well-being, that sense of belonging is really important. Um, and, and that's for the whole school community. And I'm just wondering when when well-being is, I, I suppose, is being impacting negatively within a school community and people aren't, you know, don't have that sense of well-being across a school. And often it's because of pressure and stress and increased workloads and all the extra increases. How do we convince leadership then that they need to still promote parental partnership, um, student voice, which can feel like just other things that they have to do. Um, but that, that they, how, how do we get leaders to promote this and uh, within schools as, as an aid to well-being within the school, to bring that community feeling back that we know that belonging helps well-being, but it almost seems to kind of fight each other, that it's an extra thing to do, so we don't do it when we're pressured and stressed, but it actually is the link back to school well-being. Well, I couldn't agree with you more because over the last 25 years, parents have moved from being outside the gate and never welcomed within the school. And certainly NAPD has tried to move uh, the parental um, involvement within schools uh, a long, long way. I, I was lucky would have very active parents groups in Mount Temple to help develop them in um, in, in Presglastool and in St Mary's and we would see that an active and a vibrant parents association is vital within uh, a school structure where there's close collaboration between senior leaders in the school and um, whether it's a staff representative uh, um, you know attending parent uh, teacher meetings in a consultative way and also dealing with issues to do with codes of discipline standards of behavior and other things like that but it's really important that the parents councils in the schools would be properly established and properly funded now the inspectorate are trying to promote that uh, by um, insisting you know that they will consult 
vote um, in WSE and MLLs with the if there's a, an established uh, um, um, parents group affiliated to the parents council. But I think certainly that schools should be required to provide a type of a grant funding to the parents association so that they're not hamstrung by a lack of resources to enable them to put in place conversations with the parent body and other things like that and matters of education as opposed to there. I think broadening it out is really, really important to be able to do that. In terms of the student voice, certainly from the point of um, having good relationships uh, within the school, it's important that there would be regular meetings between the school council and cedar leadership within the school. And one of the things that I felt was very, very democratic was to look at having, you know, class captains or whatever you wanted to call them from first year to sixth year, weighted into a truly democratic council that would meet from time to time with the principal or the deputy principal to try and promote this idea of belonging to the school and having a vested interest in how the school would grow and would, would progress. So from the point of view of doing that, I think the leader can be central in encouraging that to happen, right? And you can't have a situation anymore is this thing has to happen because I say it has to happen. There has to be an element of collegiality. There has to be an element of collaboration. And one of the things that school leaders don't want is a surprise. They don't want any surprises. And the thing about it is that if you have close collaboration with your parent grouping and your student grouping, the surprises won't be eliminated, but they can be kept to the minimum. And I think that that is uh, one of the secrets uh, to provide the um, space for school leaders to enable them uh, to create that positive climate and that collaborative climate in the school, which can work. Because there's nothing worse than being in a school where um, uh, like I, I mentioned earlier on about the Secondary School Principals Association of Ireland and the talk of Minister Neve Branock of local education authorities and the seven-year terms for principals and other things like that. Now, no, those things are still being talked about and will be will be talked about again. But the thing about it is, unless it's for stated misbehaviour or economic malfeasance, you know, a principal in theory, like if you take it from me, I was in my 30s when I was principal, principal and president in Glastool, and in theory, I could have been there for 30 years years. Now, that's never, ever good within a school situation. But what I came across in my experience with the International Confederation or with ESHA was what we regard as the norm in Ireland is the norm because promotion was based on seniority. So there wasn't any willingness to move between schools. And certainly in countries like Australia and New Zealand, if you were in the same school for your entire career, the situation in Ireland is that many people in the past were appointed and retired from the same school. So where's the possibility of cross-fertilization of ideas or getting to it? And when I moved from Glastool to Mary's in the late 1990s, it was practically unheard of for a school leader to move. Whereas at the moment, um, there are movement um, from people looking to move on, figuring that they've made their contribution and now they're looking for new challenges. And on that very, because we're, we're, time, the clock is ticking on us here, but you're speaking a lot about movement. And we are in the closing stage of the podcast. And if I may, uh, it's to, you know, to note and congratulate you on the fact that you too are about to make your own move in Irish education. You're about to hand over in the coming months to a successor as director of the NAPD. So in these, this is the last question, I suppose I'm saying to you, in, 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 the, in the podcast. And as you reflect on, I mean, I'd say we have barely scratched the surface of all the stories you could tell. Um, both on air and off air about your, your your journey so far, so please God, we have an opportunity an opportunity to do that again. But 
as you reflect on that career and look into the next phase, because I'm pretty sure, because one thing with certainty, you will not be idle. Uh, you will most certainly be in demand, I would say, by, by organizations, both nationally and, and internationally. What would your parting words at this stage, as it was the next phase, be about Irish education? What's, what, what do you feel about Irish education now as you move on to the next phase of, of your own leadership journey? Well, uh, thanks very much for your kind words. You know, um, it, it, it is it is funny to think uh, that now I am moving to the next phase, and you know, Paul Crone will replace mm. me as director of the NAPD on the first of September, um, and he will bring his own expertise. People think about NAPD as a much bigger organization than it actually is mm. because of uh, you know the the type of profile that it has, its involvement in Ireland and in international there. So yes, there probably will be something for me to get involved in, in the educational sphere. But one of the things that I was taken by um, uh, Dr. Harry Barry, who spoke at our conference last week, and he was maintaining that school leaders sometimes have their priorities wrong. And what we need to do is to concentrate on the self rather than work. And certainly my wife and my family um, have... Their, their, their access to me, I suppose, by my, um, uh, my, my desire to be involved in work has suffered in recent times. So I suspect in the short term, my involvement will be um, with my, my two grandchildren who are only three and six months, you know, in terms of where they will go. But certainly I feel that education is in a really, really good space in Ireland at the moment. Force majeure has forced us to split no, that's its political decision. It's not force majeure, probably. The Department of Education and um, into the Department of Education and the Department of Further and Higher Education. And I think that gives great opportunities to recognise and reflect on what we need our education system to do. The challenges will be uh, to reduce the number of schools, to create a governance model in school that frees up the school leader uh, to, um, to lead. Uh, rather than to be engaged in governance and, um, and, 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 and other aspects and accountability aspects uh, in education. So okay. what I would see my involvement would be um, in the short term, probably uh, going back uh, to study a PhD level in the leadership area and making a contribution that way. Mm -hmm. uh, certainly, um, you're very kind to say, you know, that people will be in demand, my skills will be in demand. We'll wait and see how th those sort of things will come about. But in the short term, an emphasis on family, an emphasis on time, an emphasis on creating space in my own head uh, at the moment to enable me uh, not to move from a mangled space, because certainly the team that I've worked with, with NAPD presidents, members of my executive, and the groups that I've worked with across the board um, over the last number of years, uh, they have recognised the, the ideas that NAPD are trying to promulgate. And in those circumstances, I feel that anything I can do to help my successors to promulgate those ideas, mm -hmm. I'm more than willing to do. But equally, I have to recognise that when I took over as director of NAPD, Mary McGlynn and um, other people that were very involved moved backwards to enable me put my own stamp Step forward. Organization. Yeah. And I think that's something I would be very, very keen to do uh, with so, my professors and the new presidents that come about in NAPD. Thank you. Five, yeah, well, look, I mean, there's some lovely closing thoughts and, and phrases there in, in your response about the leader concentration on the self in a community context and the system freeing up the leader to lead, I think is what you said almost word for word. Um, 
And and then you're at the same time remembering family. And if COVID has taught us anything, it's sort of what you outlined there, that our friends, our family are, are really what's all the most important people in our lives. And they were to never forget that we are people as well as professionals, which I, th- I would argue is a, a particularly acute challenge for teaching. And But that's a whole other podcast. Um, so Dave, I want to, number one, thank you most sincerely for sharing so generously of your reflections, your thoughts and insights on Irish education. Plenty more to fill in that tank, I would think, for future conversations. So thank you. And to wish you well in the next phase of leadership development. I want to thank Anya. Uh, uh, my colleague in Irish Education, but the CEO of the NPC Primary for the purposes of this uh, this podcast and for your for helping to keep the conversation going and bringing your own viewpoint and your own thoughts to bear on, on the podcast. Thank you so much, Anya. To all our listeners for tuning in from near and far, I'm, I'm told by my team in the council that includes Kerry, I don't know why this is mentioned specifically, but Kerry gets specific mention, France and New Zealand. So we just have global listenership because you include Kerry in the list, apparently. Don't forget to subscribe to the podcast, folks. We're on all major podcast platforms. And if you enjoyed the episode, please do share it with your friends far and wide. If you have any comments or thoughts on the podcast, you can find us on Twitter, at Teaching Council. It's all one word, at Teaching Council. Or email us directly at communications at teachingcouncil.ie. So until the next time, thanks everyone. Stay safe and stay connected.